From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we would love to hear from you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. 2985, or you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, is Father Brian Mullady. How are you? It's fine, thank you. So, guess what I can do? I can count. (laughs) And I can count to 40 from Easter, and lo and behold, it brings us to today. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, well, you know, it is the Feast of the Ascension, but because many people in the church wanted to make it easier, they thought, for people to not have a further holy day of obligation in the middle of a work week. For many a diocese, not all, it was left up to the bishops. They moved the observance to Sunday. Whichever day you observe it on, the Feast of Ascension is an extremely important feast. For one thing, we talk about Christ ascending into heaven in the Creed, so it's obviously an article of the Creed. And it's very important with regard to our understanding about why our Lord came from heaven to earth. For one thing, I'm often accustomed to refer to our Lord, for example, when he's condemned to death by Pilate with the crown of thorns scourged, where Pilate says, Ecce homo, behold man. Because this is what we do to each other as a result of original sin, then the similar thing could be said when Jesus rises from the dead in the upper room when he appears there before the apostles, despite the fact that the doors are locked. But a further example is actually when he ascends into heaven, it's in a sense a symbolic act of our particular finally enjoying the beatific vision, and not only in our souls, but in our bodies. And so you could say when Christ goes from earth to heaven, he beckons to us to follow him where he is going. And he says, this is your hope, actually. This is what it's really all about. This is why the whole process began 
in which I gave you intellect and will at the beginning of the world. It's in order that you might enjoy me for all eternity. And remember, Christ sends them to preach and to baptize in the whole world. That's their mission. And also, the Great Commission. And also, our Lord, in that moment, shows to us that he doesn't leave us orphans, too. Though he's gone from us physically, he's still present to us, not only spiritually, but also sacramentally, because his body and blood and soul and divinity, which ascended into heaven, now we're talking here about his human nature, because he's always been in heaven in his divine nature, those things will be made present to us in the Holy Eucharist. And so on the Feast of the Ascension, we also recall the fact that Christ hasn't left us orphans. Today's gospel has it, a little while you will see me, and a little while you shall not see me. And then, uh, you know, the, the world may rejoice, but you will weep. And then, and then uh, you won't grieve when the world grieves. Because... The people in general society have always put their hope in something besides seeing God, and that can't bring them final perfection and final fulfillment. So in the Feast of the Ascension, we see our Lord showing to us what final perfection and final fulfillment are about, and then also calling us to proclaim the news of his resurrection to the world in which we live. That's one of the reasons why all throughout Easter we've read the Acts of the Apostles. It's sometimes been called the Gospel of the Holy Spirit because it has to do with how the Holy Spirit's presence permeates the world through the Apostles' ministry. And this all prepares us then in the final analysis not only for the first great novena, which if you're celebrating Ascension on Thursday is obvious because it begins on Thursday and ends on Pentecost. When it says, remember, the disciples went to the upper room and prayed with Mary for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It not only prepares us for that and to do the great novena, but also something we're going to talk about next week which is actually my favorite feast now in my old age of the whole Christian calendar. And that's the Feast of Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit and the fire comes down and gives us the fire, the fire of love, the fire of the Spirit's uh, movement. So uh, Christ has ascended into heaven and a blare of trumpets as accompanies him as he goes to heaven to finally show us our destiny. We've got an email uh, along these lines from Cynthia. She says, I read recently that Jesus brought the souls waiting for heaven, for instance, Adam and Eve, Moses, Abraham, etc., with him during his ascension. For some reason, I had thought he did that during the Triduum when he descended to the dead, and then rose, they accompanied him. Can you give us some more information? I hope to hear an answer when I listen. 
my understanding is that when Christ rises from the dead, he brings them out of limbo because the passion, of course, has been celebrated now and the sin is its own for, and they've all been waiting for the passion in order for the gates of heaven to be opened again. Symbolically, I suppose you could say that also it's not an either-or situation, but a both-and situation, that when Christ himself ascends into heaven and beckons to us, they're with him with that also. But you're right, they're released from the limo of the just on the Feast of the Resurrection of the Dead. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Annie writes in, Hi, Father. I'm spending time with Sister Catherine's dialogues. Can you comment on how God says we can never atone for first sin against infinite goodness and we must have love, and attach ourselves to Jesus. What advice beyond prayer and the sacraments do you suggest for reaching this ideal? Thank you for saying yes to your Dominican vocation. Uh, I'm not sure. You must mean St. Catherine's Dialogues. That's my guess, yes. Yes, Um, and I'm not sure what part you're talking about, and it's very hard for me to deal with a quote that's taken out of context. But I think what she's trying to say is that we can't save ourselves from original sin. And even once we receive grace, we still have the effects of original sin that we have to slowly have healed that are not obviously the deprivation of seeing God in the face in heaven. Because original sin is not mortal sin. So even though we've been redeemed, we still suffer with ignorance, malice, um, concupiscence, and we still die and we still experience suffering. So in the face of that, we have to continually rely on the Lord in order to bring us from our pilgrimage to the end of it, which is in heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line, Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN's Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders. Buy Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com today and receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 288 First up is Terry. 
in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Terry, you're on with Father Brian. All right. Thank you very much for taking my call, Father. Thank you for being a priest. I have, um, it's kind of like a two-pronged question that has to do with Adam and Eve and original sin. So if Eve was born original sin, there wouldn't be a concupiscence. So in my mind, there wouldn't be a tendency to disobey. In my mind, she would know not to disobey as part of her nature. So that's my first question. Why would she even disobey if she, if she wasn't under the uh, under concupiscence? <laughs> And then the second, <laughs> the second follow-up is, if she had not disobeyed, maybe the, maybe down the line, next of kin eventually would disobey, right? Well, as to the second, I can't answer your question because it's a matter of speculation. Totally, um, there's nothing about it in the scripture. But, and the whole point is that the original sin is committed by the first two parents. So, yes, I assume that down the line, if someone had disobeyed, the, uh, the effects of original sin might have taken place, except that they're not the mother or father of the human race. Now, as to the first question, though, that's fairly easy to answer. Uh, it's true that it was at the suggestion of the tempter that Eve disobeyed and then she got Adam to disobey. However, human beings are perfectly capable of thinking up evil on their own. And the biggest uh, nature of the sin, remember, was pride. And the whole point is that it's possible for a person, because the wicked angels were like this, to be given thousands of gifts by God, but really want to call the shots themselves. Uh, they don't want to depend on anybody to tell them what to do. This was the case with Eve, who perhaps could have been convinced about this, but Adam and Eve were not ignorant, nor were they weak. So that's why the sin is so terrible. And they had the you know, walk and talk with God as an intimate in the garden. They were blessed with the fullness of grace. Probably uh, they experienced a kind of infused contemplation. And yet the whole lesson for us is it doesn't matter how holy you are on earth, you can always disobey before you die. Now, Mary couldn't because God bridled this in her. And her union with him was so close that she couldn't obviously conceive of anything different. But when it comes to everybody else, it's perfectly possible for us to want to be the center of the world. It was true Satan, who was one of the highest of the angels, and didn't have concupiscence because it doesn't have a body. And it's true of us too. So Mary did not need concupiscence and the weakness that comes to us from the original sin in order to um, have an inordinate movement of her will toward herself 
as though she could persevere in this condition without God. Remember, they could always pray to help them. And they had this intimate relationship with God. And when you consider how intimate they were and how prayer could help them, the fact that they refused to ask for actual grace, you know, God help me in making this decision, was itself an unloving act. It was a terribly unloving act. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a reflection on this in the space trilogy he wrote called Paralandra, which is about Venus. Only it's really the world before original sin. And there is no man. There's only the woman. And the commandment there is, by the part of the creator, is uh, Venus is an undulating ocean in which there's no resting place. However, there's one fixed land. And they're allowed to visit the fixed land, but they can't stay there overnight. So she's tempted to visit it, and she survives the temptation. She doesn't sin. Afterwards, she says, you know, the creator opened my mind to understand what my problem was. Why would I want to visit the fixed land except because it was fixed? And why would I want to do that except to means that I won't have to put myself in the hands of the creator, that I can do it all myself? And this is not love. Just the opposite. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Next up is Colleen, a first-time caller in Bellevue, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Colleen, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Hi. Uh, my question, Father, is regarding the St. Bridget prayer, the 15 prayers. I know, nothing that, about, uh, I, know, I know nothing about that. I can't answer your question. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not a dev- I've heard of the devotion, but it's not a devotion I've ever had or even read. So I can't answer your question. Yeah, you may try back on next Wednesday, Colleen, when Father Mitch is here. And if our producer, Michael McCall, will write this down, we might, I might even try to remember to ask him. But I'm pretty sure it's just a nuance of translation. Uh, I'm sure that ag- the agony of death is just as poignant as death agony as the translation renders it in the devotion. But Father Mitch would probably be able to give you a closer uh a closer answer to that from the well, linguistic standpoint. Uh, next well, if you step. have a more legitimate, you know, general question about theology that's in that litany, I can answer it, but I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, she was so, she was asking a question about the wording of one of the prayers. Oh, I see. So it's a translation issue. Is that all right, Colleen? Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. Eight three three two eight eight three. Excuse me, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Tony is a first-time caller in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Tony, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Oh, hi. Thank you for letting me call. Uh, so um, I'm a lifelong Catholic, 56 years old. 
Um, in my 20s, I was taking an art history class, and one day the professor puts up a slide of Masaccio's tribute fish. And I had never heard that passage from the gospel before, and I still never hear it at Mass. Is there uh, oh, any is this reason? The, is oh, this I'm sorry, the, go ahead. No, is, is this the one where they go fishing and find the, the tax and the, the fish well, when they uh, catch it? Well, the fresco shows a tax collector confronting Jesus, and he sends Peter to the right. lake, and Peter's getting the money out of the fish mouth, and then they give it back to the tax collector. Is there what's the significance, uh, and why I've never heard a sermon on it? Well, my uh, if I remember correctly, the meaning is uh, Christ is the Son of Man doesn't have to pay the temple tax because, after all, the temple's all about him. But he doesn't want to scandalize the people. So for both Peter and for himself, he gets it in this strange way where, you know, his hands don't touch the filthy money and all that stuff. And so they go fishing, and he, they, since Peter was a fisherman, he find, catches a fish in which he finds two coins that's enough to pay the temple tax for Christ and for him. But the primary way of the passage is that the Son of Man doesn't pay the temple tax because it's about him. Does that clear it up, Tony? It does. I, well, I was just wondering, it's just not very common, is it? I, uh, What's not very common? Oh, you mean talking about it? No, because yes. it's, an, it's an obscure part of the gospel. You know, Everything in the gospel is as important as everything else. But it shows Christ's concern for scandal. It shows his concern for tradition. And it shows that he doesn't have to submit himself to a lot of the traditions. But he does so out of condescension to the people. God bless you, Tony. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Corey writes in and wants to know, what is the Catholic position on the assurance of salvation? Oh, well, that's easy to answer. And the Catechism, interestingly, does it using Joan of Arc. Um, we can never be absolutely certain we're in the state of grace uh, unless God reveals it personally to us for some important reason, like martyrdom, for instance. And the reason is because grace is always a God's initiative. And so we can't have an absolute certainty we're in the state of grace, but we have a relative certainty provided we detest sin and we seek to live a good life. We forget, you know, we desire our sins to be forgiven and things like that. So Joan of Arc was asked this question in her trial because the theologians wanted to trip her up. And if she'd said, yes, I'm in the state of grace, they would have burned her as a witch, or excuse me, as a heretic, because she can't know that with absolute certainty. And if she said, no, I'm not in the state of grace, they would have burned her as a heretic, because everything she did, or I should say a witch, everything she did was done at the devil's inspiration, with the devil's power. And Joan of Arc confounded her judges, and remember, she was an unlettered person, they asked her if she was in the state of grace, and she said, well, 
if I am, may God keep me there, and if I'm not, may God put me there. Period. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Big congratulations going out to a member of the EWTN radio family, KSJH FM 102.3 in Hart, Texas, is celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to everyone at St. John Nepomucene Church in Hart, Texas, from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Michael is in Las Vegas, Nevada, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Michael, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello, Father Brian Mullady. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. You guys are pretty cool. Um, so I, uh, I'm not sure if it's a pastoral question or what, but... Um, I just got re- uh, I got another diagnosis of cancer just last week, and uh, they found masses in my head and tumors. And I get I'm married with wife and kids. I got six kids, and the thing is, how do I make a difference in my life for God, glory before I pass on? Because I don't think I can survive the second time around. The first time was a killer for me. Well, uh-huh. I didn't die and kill me, but it took a lot out of me. I bet. And the second time, I'm I'm a different person now, and. I don't want to um, leave this world not doing something for God or for His kingdom, and I feel like I'm behind now. Yeah. Like, how, what do you recommend about make it? Is it still possible to make a difference? Oh, of course. Listen, the best thing you can do uh, if you can't survive is to offer your death for your family. And also to have a holy attitude toward death. Remember, it's the doorway to heaven. In death, we fall into the arms of the everlasting one whom we say we've loved. To show the love of God is what's motivated your life. I had a sister friend once who spent three years dying of bone cancer. And she had three years to prepare for her death. And she was a very unusual person, to say the least. And uh, it, was, it was tough for her, but she never showed it. She never uh, complained, ever. Uh, the people who took care of her in the rest of said, we've never had a patient. It was more of a pleasure to serve. Because she never talks about herself. She never talks about her sufferings. She's always cheerful. And she used to lie in her bed and have a life-size crucifix on the wall that she could look at. And when she was going to die, she said to me, because she had, you know, three years to prepare for this, she said, you know what my death's going to be like? This is going to be my death. It's going to be a long tree-lined drive. And Jesus is going to be at one end, and I'm going to be at the other dressed in my bridal gown. And my death is going to be running down the tree-lined drive. 
and jumping into the arms of Jesus, my spouse, whom I have so loved and longed to see throughout my life. Well, people took care of her, so this is an extraordinary attitude. And yet it was born in her merely from prayer and from grace, so that she could help the living, too. Uh, we had a priest who died of uh, colon cancer, and uh, the priest that gave his eulogy said, you know, uh, he went to see the doctor who was an atheist Jew. And the doctor said to him, you have fourth stage colon cancer. And Father Michael said, thank you. That was it. The doctor was astonished because he said he never received a reaction to this diagnosis like that. And he said, don't you understand what I'm telling you? You're going to die soon. He said, yes, thank you. And he said, well, is the reason you're so nonchalant about this is because you're a Catholic priest? And Michael just said, well, I suppose so. And we had a priest who, his was all shutting down in his 80s, his whole inner system. And the doctor said to him, well, you know, I can do a surgery, but you'll probably only get two or three months from it. It's gonna, it would be terribly painful at your age. And it's not going to really benefit you that much. but So I don't know what to do because you're not able to eat anymore. You're not going to do this. So Father just said, oh, heck, I spent my whole life preparing for this moment. Bring death on. And the next day he died. But, I mean, it's your attitude that helps your family and the world now more than anything else. Hopefully you'll survive. That would be wonderful if it wasn't too painful. But if you can't, uh, you think about the uh, influence, your attitude toward the fact that death is a portal into a much better life will have on your family and the people with whom you live. Does that help, Michael? This, uh, then I messed up this first week. I've been crying and angry this whole last week. Well, in a way, that's understandable when the thing first hits you. Uh, I remember my sister friend, she made a tape on her preparing for death. And she said, I have for many years looked forward to going to heaven. It's dying I don't really fancy. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a terrible, terribly compromising thing. But once you get over it all, that part of it, just remember why you're here, all right? And this can be a great grace for you and a great grace for your family, regardless of how it turns out. This could, this could very well prepare your six children for, uh, for their own happy death should things head that way. Right. St. Joseph's a good person to pray for for this, too, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying I'd have the courage to do this, but I, I wish I would because I think it would be in a sense, almost more helpful to the people that I'm um, leaving. When St. Dominic was dying, the founder of my order, all the friars were around the bedside weeping. And he said, listen, don't weep for me. I'll be of much more use to you in heaven than I ever was on earth. <laughs> God bless you, Michael, and you've done a great thing here today because you're going to have a whole bunch of listeners of EWTN's open praying line, for praying for you sure. and praying for your family. God bless you. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Jack has sent us an email, obviously a brilliant emailer, who says, I'm Catholic, but my fiancé is not. I'm trying to be in communion with the church. What does living as brother and sister mean? No sex, (laughs) basically. Uh, It means just that, living as brother and sister, which means that uh, normally you'd have separate rooms to sleep in and you wouldn't consummate your marriage. Um, But other than that, you could, you know, you cook together, enjoy meals together, enjoy all the other things that people enjoy when they live as the other as a family, but you won't have children and you won't have sex. You know, Father, I would suggest, and, and every situation is different, and there may be a situation that for one reason or another, if they are cohabitating currently, that they just cannot get out of that situation. But I would encourage him, if at all possible, to se- to, to separate this living situation until such time uh, as they're right. married. Priests often do that, and usually it goes in one ear and comes out the other. Uh, but, you know, that's the best way. That's the ideal way to live separately and to court, you know, like people used to. Um, but not to live in the same house because there's too much temptation and things there. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. We appreciate that uh, email. We've still got time for your phone calls. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 833- 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. Clay has been contemplating, um, possibly uh, looking towards joining the Catholic Church, but he wants to know how does the Catholic Church justify its usage of statues, given the Old Testament prohibition of them, and how does the whole catechumen and initiation process work? Oh, gee, well, there's two questions there. Uh, uh, Regarding the statue business, the prohibition in the Old Testament is not against images. It's against worshiping images, making them, like saying that if you have a, let's say, a statue of Our Lady, that the stone part of the statue is uh, what you're worshiping. We don't believe that. The people in the Old Testament were called away from idolatry from believing in that. Nonetheless, there wasn't a total prohibition of images in the Old Testament because, as you remember, when the people got sick from the serpent bites, Moses was commanded to put a serpent on a pole that they look at to be healed. And then the classic example is always the cherubim that covered the Ark of the Covenant. So those were two images that God commanded be made himself. Uh, and we don't worship people, the statue, the stone, obviously, or the painting. Um, we worship the person whom it represents. Now, as to initiation, normally in most parishes they have something called RCIA, which is instruction or for people who are seeking entrance into the faith as adults. And in this, you take classes, 
and then you go through a period of preparation at Mass, and then at the Easter Vigil, you're either baptized, or you do have to make, if you're already baptized, because many people are, in a Protestant sect, you have to um, make a profession of faith about the things that you didn't believe in. But it takes some preparation to do that, and normally that's done with a, a catechist. But then also the priest may get involved at some point, and probably should, just to be sure who it is he's baptizing or receiving into the faith. But uh, no, we don't worship images. I obviously don't think the stone is going to save me. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Tom in Chicago called in, Brian, and he had a great idea, Father Brian. He asked uh, if we could maybe say a little prayer on air for Michael, our last caller, and his uh, health situation. Would you do that, please? Surely. Dearest Lord, we ask you that you might help Michael feel courageously and lovingly with his illness so that he might be a witness, especially to his family, of his love of the Lord. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Michael. We are continuing to keep you in our prayers. Chike is watching us on YouTube, and I believe he's in Nigeria, and he wants to know, can you please enlighten me on the Catholic theology of redemptive suffering? I'm finding it a little difficult to understand. When Adam and Eve committed the sin, their sin was committed on two levels. It was committed, first of all, with the loss of grace, but secondly, then, in disobedience to God. Both have to be resolved in order for us to be at peace again with God. We can't obviously resolve for the part done against God because we're not God. So God somehow has to do that. But in order for him to do that, because it was committed by a human being, God has to take a human nature. However, to redeem us from this loss of grace... Only certain punishments assumed from the original sin, because they have to be a part of the thing, would be fitting. So, for example, since it was Adam's unloving disobedience that led us to lose grace, now the person taking on human nature has to lovingly obey, and anything that would compromise that loving disobedience in a human will it's not fitting for him to have. So in the intellect, it wouldn't be fitting for him to be ignorant. In the will, it wouldn't be fitting for him to be malicious. And even in the passions, it wouldn't be fitting for him to experience concupiscence. Yet, because he has to take some punishment upon himself to atone for the sin, the non-moral punishments are the only ones open, and those would be suffering and death. So that's why our Lord assumes suffering and death. And when he dies on the cross, as uh, the scriptures say, 
it is finished. In other words, the loving obedience against uh, the things which Adam and Eve disobeyed is finally atoned for, and as a result, the human race can receive grace again. But we're not a death cult. I mean, I realize that the crucifix is a very gruesome symbol for a religion. We're not a death cult. We don't worship death. We don't think death is it. But it's something that has to be gone through in order for life to occur. And it's a necessary part of the experience. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Be sure to join us for The Doctor is In tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's Look Back Friday, where Dr. Ray revisits calls from previous shows and adds some additional insight. That is The Doctor is In with Dr. Ray Garendi tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Paulette in Brookdale, Maryland, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Paulette, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father. Hi, Paulette. Go ahead. Hi. Um, My question is related to uh, the conversation that was going on about um, if you're married and uh, are you married in heaven and uh, if you're married and your wife dies and you you remarry and you do this seven times, how do you know who your wife is in heaven? But my, I mean... When you die, it's only your soul that goes to heaven. So you don't have eyes, you don't have mind. So I didn't quite understand everything that was being said. Didn't kind didn't make sense when it's only your soul that's going to heaven. Well, first, first of all, it's not only your soul, because at the end of time, your body will join it, because the body is a necessary part of man. Secondly, I believe you're talking about the law of Leveret, which was in the Old Testament. And if you recall, their whole point was that asked Christ the question, whose wife would you be? What does Jesus say? You know, neither the scriptures are in the power of God because they're not married anymore. Virginity is the national condition of heaven. They, of course, remember their husbands and wives of birth. They remember their legitimacy and intimacy here. But marriage is a condition proper to this earth, not to heaven. The only marriage we experience in heaven is our marriage bond with the Lord, not with anyone else. So uh, you do get your body back, though. But your body, at the end of time now, not in the first judgment, your body um, really reflects whatever your marital relationship is with the Lord. So if you're in the state of grace, it's beautiful and light and agile, that sort of thing. If you're in this in hell, it's heavy, uh, weighed down, uh, that sort of thing. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We can still squeeze your call in at 833-288-3986. Joseph is in the Republic of Texas listening in San Antonio to Guadalupe Radio. Joseph, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my uh, question today is, is 
I, I guess basically about how our American modern diet uh, is is not what it's supposed to be. It's more uh, absent of of holiness and and the the good natural way of cooking food and preparing and so forth. So uh, a quote comes to me: uh, How can one have a righteous thought when their food is unholy? So my question is: How can a Christian, a Catholic, Orthodox, so forth? How can we maintain a Christian life and and engage in noble suffering when food pre- prevents us from having proper motivation, uh, uh, you know, negative thought, uh, lethargy, uh, you name it, it, and also contributing to disease and so forth. So I was just hoping maybe the church, scripture, or even you, Father, you might have a perspective on this, being Lucifer's absent. Uh, from us, we don't technically have an enemy in front of us. It's it's uh, more of an incremental uh, negation under our nose, in front of our face type situation. So I, you know, I would hope uh, you would have a perspective on that. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Except I have no idea what you're asking me. Uh, Lucifer is still present with us always. Uh, as for food. Remember, they had dietary laws under the old law. But remember in the famous vision of Joppa, the sheet was opened and there were all the animals were in there. And as a result, um, the lesson the apostles drew from this vision was that Christ now had declared all foods holy. So we don't have, you know, have to fast from pig or anything like that. And fasting isn't a matter of problems with the food and its preparation or whatever. Fasting is a symbol of one's insatiable desire to have their pleasures satisfied. In fact, the sin of gluttony is only a venial sin normally. The only time it would become a mortal sin is if it was used to justify something else like murder, for instance. And you say, well, how could that possibly be? Well, in the Frugal Gourmet's cookbook, he talks about the fact that the introduction that there was a, a certain mushroom show prize for its taste in China that emperors used to commit assassination in order to get it. Well, that would be an example of a mortal sin of gluttony. Or a person whose appetite was so little satisfied that they had small quantities of food, but they were impossible to please regarding making this. And so they are constantly interfering with overworked waitresses or, or they can never find a cook who can cook for them properly because they don't, their, their appetites aren't satisfied. But it has absolutely nothing to do with healthy food. And the quote you made me from Scripture, it seems to me, is using food in a poetical sense, which means as, uh, you know, the the sustenance for the body in general. And we could certainly eat more healthily in America. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with spirituality. But, but we can <laughs> no. we don't need to over spiritualize that is where I was no. heading with that. Yeah. No. Yeah.
God bless you, Joseph. We appreciate the phone call. Quickly, we'll head to Chris in Dallas, Texas, also listening on Guadalupe Radio. Chris, a couple minutes left with Father Brian. What's your question today? Hi there. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I have a friend who is a uh, Lutheran pastor uh, who is considering converting to the Catholic Church uh, under the pastoral provision. Um, But his uh, primary uh, hang-up, I suppose, is from an emotional basis where he feels if he converted, it would send the message that the faith of his parents, his grandparents, his great-grandparents was somehow not right or... Uh, not valid or improper, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm curious what Father and what uh, you might have to say um, in regards to that. What I would say is that his conversion is primarily a matter for himself. Whatever his ancestors may have thought, that's their problem. However, in converting from their faith, He's basically saying himself that he doesn't think there were parts of their belief that were valid. Now, I always maintain today that this whole Reformation thing, for the most part, is nonsense today. Because most Protestants couldn't tell you what justification by faith means. And most Catholics have no clue what the argument was about to begin with. And many of them didn't have a clue of what it was about, what had happened. The Council of Trent, when it first met, had only a few bishops. But there was, I remember, one poor Sicilian bishop, and he gave a keynote speech in which he held out for justification by faith, and they had him pack it in the car to go back to Sicily overnight because he didn't really understand what the whole argument was about. The only person who understood it was the Augustinian a general because of Luther being an Augustinian. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.